episode 118, Improving Health in Healthy Communities. Today, I speak with Rick Brush about the way to Wellville. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It is rather inarguable at this point that 80% of health outcomes come from factors that are not clinical in nature. 80% of health outcomes come from social, environmental, and physical slash behavioral circumstances. So what happens if incented communities work together to level up health before it comes to healthcare? And what's the ROI on that? Rick Brush, the CEO of Wellville, explains. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Rick. Thanks, Stacy. It's great to be here. I am so excited to talk to you about Wellville. Could you just give, for those who might be unfamiliar, an overview of Wellville? Sure. So Wellville is a five-community, 10-year challenge to improve overall population health and financial outcomes in uh, smaller communities around the country. And it was started not by a public health organization or a medical organization, but by an angel investor best known in the technology sector. And that would be Esther Dyson, who, by the way, is a hero of mine. Why why would the two of you, because you also have a corporate background, you know, in corporate strategy, how did you get from there to here? Esther loves large, gnarly, seemingly unsolvable problems and has, you know, made an impact throughout her life. And she considered about five years ago that health in this country was not sort of a failure of the medical system, but really a failure of thinking about things differently. And so I met Esther around this question. And the question was, we spend $3 trillion, a little bit more than that, every single year in this country on health care. And, you know, what's the return? And, you know, sort of a question you'd expect from an investor. What, what's our return on investment for what we're investing? And if we really look at the outcomes that we're getting, they're not very good. But there are smarter ways that we could invest our money that would produce much better outcomes, potentially at lower costs. Back to Wellville. What's the way to Wellville? The way to Wellville is a way of really exploring what will it take to dramatically and sustainably improve health by bringing together all of the stakeholders that are necessary to improve not only health outcomes, but overall social, economic, and you know, larger community outcomes. So Wellville started with a call for applications in 2014, and we invited communities who had already made a decision that they wanted to go down this path. So you know, we wanted to stack the deck. These are communities that this isn't the first time that they thought about you know, what it would take to improve overall health outcomes. And they've honestly been at it for a number of years. So these are communities that have, you know, multi-stakeholder collaboratives in place. They have good support, not only from the health systems and public health side, but also, you know, local governments, community agencies, businesses and citizens who have come together to, you know, change the trajectory of health in their communities. 
And so we started with this call for applications and, you know, we didn't really publicize it a lot, but we got 42 applications from communities around the U.S. We were looking for smaller communities. So these are generally 100,000 or less in population. And we were looking for communities that were relatively self-contained. So, you know, not like a suburb of New York City. You know, we were looking for communities that essentially people live, you know, learn, work, play all within the boundaries of these communities, because we thought those are all the key influence points to impact health. And so we got these 42 applications. We went through a, a rigorous screening process and we ended up with 10 communities that we went out and visited. And that really made a difference. You know, it's one thing to read about what people are doing on paper, but then to go out and actually meet them and to hear from you know, leaders in the community, not only the organizational leaders, but, you know, the residents of the community and really to test their conviction and whether they were up for this challenge over the long haul. And so we picked five communities and uh, we've been working with them. The kickoff was 2015. So we're closing in um, at the end of our second year of this 10-year initiative. I cannot wait to get to your midterm results or probably early results, I guess we might call it. But in the meantime, what communities are you working with? So who won? There were actually many more that we would love to have worked with and we could <laughs> do so and, you know, spread not spread ourselves too thin. So you know, at the end of the day, we probably ended up with, you know, at least 16, we called it our sweet 16 that we would have loved to work with. And then we went through a process of really looking at diversity in terms of geography, in terms of population demographics, in terms of the challenges that they were facing, as well as, you know, what they might bring to the table that's unique. And then also we looked at, you know, who's leading the collaboratives in each of these places? And could we learn something if there's a different kind of organization that's leading the charge in each place? So the communities we selected are Spartanburg, South Carolina, the city of Spartanburg, Lake County, California, about three hours north of the Bay Area, Clatsop County, Oregon, which is in the northwest corner of the state of Oregon, Muskegon County, Michigan, and our newest community we added recently is North Hartford, Connecticut. So I understand that the point of the operation here is to attempt to, you know, it reminds me of something I say probably way too often at work, which is we can't be so busy mopping up the floor that we don't have time to turn off the faucet. It kind of reminds me of the idea that what a patient does or what a what a citizen or a, a person does outside of the healthcare setting is way more important to their ultimate healthcare outcomes than what they do sitting in the doctor's office. You know, if a patient is entirely sedentary, if, if a patient is breathing bad air, if all of these various environmental factors. So what are you trying to do with these communities that ultimately you think is going to level up to better care? Yeah, that's right. We tend to think about health and what matters to health in terms of health care. And we think of hospitals and doctors and pharmaceuticals and you know, while all of those are essential, especially when we're ill, they're not what it turns out determines health in the first place. What really matters to health is this 80% of factors that are outside of the medical care system. So, you know, the, the science is pretty solid here that maybe 20% at most, maybe even as little as 10% of what matters to our health over the long haul is the medical care system. So, Another question we asked at the beginning of this is, well, what are those factors in this larger 80%? And it turns out 
its health behaviors, its uh, social and economic factors, you know, it's the environment that we live in, and it's our genetics. And, you know, even our genetics, so all of these factors are influenced by, you know, how we live our lives. So, you know, we're born with a set of genes, but we know now with epigenomics that even our genes are affected by the lives we live. So our environment, our experience, our social relationships, all of these things can make a big difference in terms of our predisposition for diseases, you know, even if our genes say that we're predisposed to that in the first place. It's a matter of do those genes turn on or off based on uh, what we're facing in our lives. So these larger factors are, you know, they're huge, huge conditions that we all live in and we don't think a lot about in terms of health, but their education, their employment and income, their, you know, our housing and transportation and our food systems. And you can imagine, you know, how all of these larger community factors not only have an impact on our health outcomes, they also determine what sort of choices we can make. So if you live in a community where lots of healthy food at affordable rates is available, you're probably going to eat healthier than if you live in a place where the low cost convenient foods are unhealthy. So that's, I think, an easy way for people to understand these larger factors and they're, you know, together they're called the social determinants of health. And in our communities, we're focused not only on, you know, the medical care system and making sure that we're continuing to make that really effective and high quality and provide access and efficiencies, but we're looking at these larger factors. So I think it's, it's you know, as you described, you know, the mopping up the floor is dealing with the emergencies. And at the same time, you know, the turning off the faucet is, you know, how do you prevent people from entering the risk pool in the first place? Because if all you're doing is dealing with those downstream risks, you know, you don't have enough capacity to turn off the faucet. So that's exactly why the communities that we selected, you know, have these larger multi-sector collaboratives. So at the table are, you know, the superintendents of schools, they're, you know, the zoning and planning commissions, they're community agencies that deal with uh, housing insecurity and food insecurity. Because we know that until we address those larger factors, we won't make an impact. You know, just a couple of data points. You know, education. Education is one of the most essential ingredients to a long, healthy life. And, you know, there have been a lot of studies behind this. So, you know, one study found that college graduates live about five years longer than those who don't complete high school. And if you looked at not only the, the health outcomes, but the cost outcomes of having so few in some communities who not only graduate high school, but go on to graduate college, um, this study found that if all Americans had the same good health as college grads, we'd probably avoid about a trillion dollars of cost annually. So these are really, really big factors that make a big impact. The same thing with social relationships, you know, whether I have a good support system, whether I you know, have friends and family and neighbors that I can count on. Well, social relationships, as you know, soft as that might sound, actually have a direct impact on our health outcomes. In fact, again, you know, the studies are clear here that social relationships probably matter as much as whether we smoke or not, the rate at which we consume alcohol. And in fact, some studies actually show that social relationships are probably more important to our health outcomes than physical inactivity and obesity, which of course is what you know grabs most of our attention in the headlines related to health. So it's not saying that these factors aren't important. Certainly we need to you know address chronic disease, but I think it's it's getting to the source of the problems in the first place. And that's really what we're trying to do through Wellville. 
I've also heard it said that the most important number to determine a person's health outcome is their zip code. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so what do you do? You come into a community. I mean, obviously, if you're talking about evidence-based medicine, there's evidence and, and controlled trials, which demonstrate in a lot of history, you know, that shows that if you're trying to treat a particular patient for a particular condition, you know, here's what you do first and here's what you do second. But you're kind of coming into this as a pioneer. So, you know, you walk into a community and you get the leaders together. Like, what does that first conversation look like? And how do you prioritize what you're doing within that community? We're very much data informed. And I think that's, you know, one of the disciplines that the Wellville communities, at least in the first two years of working together, are getting better and better at. So, you know, how do we use not only, you know, traditional health data, looking at burden of chronic illness and so forth, but how do we look at some of these other data sets? And can we actually bring it down to even a neighborhood level where it could be really actionable? So, it's not just asthma rates in one community. It might be eviction rates. It might be, you know, 911 calls. It might be looking at, you know, what's really happening that's determining the culture and the focus of the community. And is that focus being sort of drained or directed in a way that uh, doesn't allow that community to sort of rise above that and start addressing things at a system level? So, you know, I think, again, our, our attention tends to go toward the crisis and we need to do that and we need to continue to treat illness when it occurs. But I think it's, you know, can we look at patterns in these different data sets that we don't typically look at that might indicate to us that there are larger issues that we could take on at the system level? And so as an example, in North Hartford, Connecticut, in part of the community called Northeast Hartford, the local hospital, St. Francis you know, looked at ER rates. And in a community of 9,000, I think there were 8,000 ER visits uh, from that community in one year. And then, you know, when they sort of dug into the data a little further, you know, they found that it actually, and this is probably not surprising for most in the health field, you know, it was a very small percentage of the population that was accounting for those 8,000 visits. So this is, you know, now uh, what's called hotspotting. So it's one thing to identify like who needs help the most, but I think it's another to think through, well, what's the solution? How do you not only reach people before crisis occurs that goes into the emergency room, but how do you help them address this larger array of life factors that are probably causing not only their physical and potentially mental illness, but you know, a whole broader array of social issues in their lives. So. So what North Hartford did is uh, partner with St. Francis on a community health worker program. And again, not surprisingly, if you could identify people and give them support outside of the emergency room before they go back to it, you can avoid those emergencies in the first place. And they found about a 60% reduction in ER visits using community health workers. And, you know, it wasn't a medical approach. It was really um, what's going on in your life. It was so important to get inside the home and understand challenges, you know, that were everything from bed bugs to, you know, lack of employment opportunities to, you know, food insecurity and connecting those individuals with community resources that can address uh, those factors that were leading to downstream medical conditions. Who has an incentive? Now I'm speaking like an economist. Who has an incentive to make that happen? That's really at the heart of the work that we're doing, answering this question of, is there a better way to you know, invest as a nation $3 trillion a year 
And in a community, our communities, you know, typically they're spending maybe $400 million a year in these smaller communities on medical care. So if you look only, you know, within the medical care system, you could say, well, we could, we could shift some of that toward prevention. But if you look a little bit more broadly, you realize that, you know, social spending is pretty significant within these communities too. So maybe now you're up to $600 million of money flowing through. And if you look not in your silo, but together at better ways to direct those investments, you might come out with different approaches. So I'll give you a couple of quick examples. So homelessness, not an issue in every single community, but in the communities we're working in, it is a challenge. And the cost of doing nothing, let's say, for homelessness, it's probably about $35,000 a year to leave someone on the street. And that's for ER and hospital visits, it's for mental health care, it's for food assistance, it's for police funding. And it's really hard to see that number, that 35,000, because it's, you know, it's segmented in all these different pockets. But at the same time, if you could bring those parties together and really look at not only the issue of homelessness in terms of people's lives and, you know, the fabric of a community, but look at it from a financial standpoint, you might collectively be able to come up with better solutions. And probably for about (laughs) $10,000, you could help a homeless person get housing, food, a job, training to keep it, you know, case management and follow-up support. So I think it's a lot of our work is around, you know, demonstrating the business case for doing the right thing, demonstrating the business case for prevention and, you know, health cultivation activities. You could look at the same thing with the cost of prisons versus schools. You could look at the same thing in the medical care system in terms of, again, uh, people showing up in the emergency room or reaching out to them through community health workers. And you could look at it through specific chronic condition. We know diabetes prevention programs work. And we know that if we can reduce transitions from prediabetes to diabetes, there's a significant economic argument to do that. So how do we deploy these new solutions at a large scale and generate the kind of cross-sector collaboration that's needed to make those successful. And then collectively, you know, look at the business case and the financial opportunity for reducing downstream costs and spending our money more wisely. You had mentioned two, I'm going to call them identified problems, maybe just now. One of them is the reduction of ER visits that North Hartford achieved. And then you also had talked about homelessness. So two questions for you. One of them is, do you find that results proven in one community are transferable to another, number one? And then number two, what are the bright spots here? You know, like what have you seen work in the first two years of this program or what are you most optimistic about? The first question, yes and no. So, (laughs) so there are, you know, there are proven practices that generally will work in most contexts, but we really believe that context matters a lot. So as much as we'd like to say, all we need to do is identify the 25 best practices and just implement them consistently, not only in five communities, but ultimately, you know, across the, the country context really matters. So for example, the way the health financing system works really is different state by state, depending upon what they've done with Medicaid, you know, depending upon, you know, the payer mix, depending upon the health systems, how far along they are with, you know, value-based healthcare financing. 
And so much of our work is this sort of the nitty gritty details of making things happen. And it's taking proven practices and then working them through the specific contexts and stakeholders and populations in each place. You know, that's part of this learning process. So it's been two years into this 10-year effort. And what we're learning is, you know, how important that detail work is for success. So not overestimating (laughs) the importance of sort of minding those details and working through with the players. So it's kind of like the best practice to figure out the best practice. That's what you're up to. Exactly. Exactly. So, (laughs) and I think the best practice to figure out the best practice, again, is understanding that every place is unique. The culture is unique. The geography is unique. The systems inside of those communities are unique. And, you know, appreciating that and working through with local partners. um, We can't, as an outside organization, come in with brilliant ideas and simply, you know, land them successfully. It's really around, you know, locking arms with local partners who are committed to doing this and then giving them, you know, extra support along the way. So you asked about bright spots. So I think one is this work in in North Hartford and this community health worker program. A similar one in in Spartanburg, there's a group called Access Health Spartanburg, and they work with the uninsured population. And unfortunately, that's a significant population in South Carolina overall. Um, but also in Spartanburg specifically. So to date, they've worked with about 6,000 people in Spartanburg County to connect them with volunteer medical care. So this is, you know, primary care, specialty care, and so forth. And what they're doing is much like this community health worker program in North Hartford, they connect individuals not only with clinical care, but also community resources. So, you know, addressing that broad array of challenges that they're facing as individuals. And I think on average, they connect each person with probably like 10 different resources in the community. And I think that speaks to the complexity of individuals with maybe multiple chronic conditions who are also facing other life challenges. So you can measure it in terms of health outcomes, and they do. And you can also measure it in terms of financial outcomes. So Spartanburg Regional Health System is the, is the leading health system in the community, And from 2009, um, when they spent about $116 million in uncompensated care or charity care, working through organizations like Access Health Spartanburg and, you know, other strategies, they now see, I think the 2015 number was about $68 million. So, you know, they've essentially cut in half the number of individuals who are flowing through the emergency room and as inpatients because they're addressing their health in much smarter ways, you know, outside the clinical setting or through primary care. So I think there's a lot of examples like that. But I'd also say equally important to us is what's happened to the collaboratives themselves. You know, all of these communities have really strong leadership teams and broad participation by organizations and citizens. Um, But they've hit, you know, a number of bumps along the way. There have been leadership changes in I think four out of our five communities since we've started in terms of who who is leading the collaborative. There are organizations that have moved from essentially competition to more collaboration. So I think that, you know, we're measuring success not only in terms of health outcomes and financial outcomes, but in terms of like the leadership and sustainability and ultimately, you know, the ability for these collaboratives to continue to generate progress even after the 10 years is up. 
I'll tell you what struck me. My first instinct when I first heard about Wellville and and communities applying was the tragedy of the commons was what I would I would have expected. In other words, if you're talking about the the health of a community, there's so many stakeholders, it's so diverse, it's everybody's problem and therefore nobody's problem. Mm. So what kind of surprised me, but in a good way, is this idea that communities are able to organize and get the right people in the room to, you know, nothing for nothing, apply for this grant to begin with, but then have the committee in place that decision making can actually occur. Yeah. So like I said, we, we stack the deck. Fortunately, there are actually more and more communities that, you know, are, are sort of picking up this charge and coming together. It's not easy work. Maybe a, an estimate of what it might take for a community to pull together this kind of a collaborative with, again, the cross-sector, multi-stakeholder support that's necessary for success. It, you know, it might take 10 years that's a long time. And I think you need endurance. And (laughs) so, you know, the communities that we've selected, and I'll tell you who's leading it in each place, they have a very strong backbone organization. You know, that's sort of the the term that we use, this, this integrator that brings all of the other organizations to the table. And that backbone organization needs to have support. Some of these efforts are primarily volunteer, but many of them you know, require some sort of financial support to make that backbone successful. So in Spartanburg, it's the Mary Black Foundation. And the Mary Black Foundation's mission is you know, to focus on health improvement. So it's really within the mission of the organization, not only to give out grants and dollars to the community, but you know, to play this integrator role for a, for a collective impact approach. And it's actually, you could think about it, it's a much smarter strategy for a foundation because they're going to be more efficient and effective in the dollars that they give out if they know there's cross-community collaboration. So it's not just giving out, you know, sort of drops of water in a bucket, but it's looking at how do you maximize the effectiveness of the dollars that you're giving through greater collaboration. In Lake County, California, it's it's a partnership between the two dominant health systems. And I, you know, I have to be honest, it's not, it hasn't always been easy and there are um, competitive factors that you know come to play. Uh, after all, these systems operate in the same county, but they do know that you know there are large public health issues that are challenging their ability to improve health outcomes. And as health systems again increasingly move toward a population-based, value-based uh, payment structure, they know working together is going to be more effective. And just to round it out, in Clatsop County, Oregon, it's Care Oregon is the backbone, which is the Medicaid plan. So they know that investing upstream is going to reduce downstream need for care. And they know that they need to do that through larger collaboration. In Muskegon County, it's the Rotary Club, so a business focus working together with public health. And in North Hartford, it's a nonprofit organization called Community Solutions, again, working with a broad collaborative that includes St. Francis, the health system, uh, University of Connecticut, uh, the city of Hartford, the state of Connecticut, and, you know, multiple, multiple community-based agencies. And I so I, I want to talk about the tragedy of the commons, or at least comment on it, that Eleanor Ostrom, who won the uh, Nobel Prize for Economics, Um, actually challenged the notion of the tragedy of the commons and said that 
If you actually look at you know, historical examples, you'll find that over time, players will come together and begin to collaborate to address shared issues. And I think that's what we're seeing in these communities. So I think it starts with a recognition that, you know, you could say that the health of the community is no one single organization's, you know, problem or opportunity. But if you do look at enlightened self-interest, you know, you find that, again, increasingly health systems and the way they're paid, payers, uh, insurers, but also governments and ultimately citizens and we'll recognize that it's in their own self-interest and collective interest to begin to come together. That's really part of what we want to demonstrate and uh, help other communities recognize is that the only way to uh, take on these challenges is by working together. And ultimately, what the ambition here is to show what the return on that investment is and so that there's a proof an evidence-based approach that other communities outside your initial five here can begin to think about. That's right. At the end of this, if we can't demonstrate that there's a financial business case, we don't think that this work will be sustainable. So we do need to have hard numbers that demonstrate that these investments upstream, as we're calling them, you know, these changes in community conditions really do lead to a good return on investment. And that's not only reduced healthcare spending, it's larger opportunities like improving overall productivity in a community. It's maybe it's real estate values. It's so we're looking at these larger, you know, economic indicators and linking them back to health improvement in a community. In North Hartford, for example, the way the work is being measured, it's called the neighborhood triple aim. And everyone in healthcare is familiar with the triple aim, looking mm-hmm. at access and uh, or quality of care and patient satisfaction and lower costs. Well, in North Hartford, we're looking at it at a population level. And so it's overall population health outcomes. It's uh, quality of life or, or well-being, experience of living in the community. And then finally, um, it's not purely cost reduction. We're looking at value of investment. So again, as I mentioned earlier, we have, oh, in North Hartford, maybe $200 million of healthcare spending. And then we could say, you know, easily another $100 million of various, you know, social spending. So can we look at that number and the outcomes we're producing today? And can we, over time, look at, you know, placing better bets that would uh, not necessarily reduce the overall number, but certainly give us better outcomes for the investments we are making? I think that, you know, even a decision like that to measure a community's success based on a neighborhood triple aim, that's a significant shift forward. Indeed. Speaking of the listeners of this podcast, most of them are executives within the healthcare space. We have tech organizations, which I'm probably thinking of in particular here, or other venture capitalists, or provider or payer organizations, or, you know, people in the life sciences or other industries. How can they help support something like this? What do you think they need to know about it? What would be your message to that crew? So I think first is the choice to want to take on this approach. I think in many communities, these kinds of efforts already exist. So it might be finding out a little bit more about where they're coming together. Could be, you know, a local business group on health. You know, it could be out of the public health department. It could be a collaborative of nonprofits that have come together. So there could be something that's already happening actually in in your community that your organization may not be connected to. I think going in with 
with the understanding that this work is incredibly important and at the same time, you know, really, really difficult and challenging. And uh, it does take this endurance. And we've experienced even in just under two years of working that there are inevitable breakdowns that will occur because after all, we, we're really trying to upend the status quo. And I think, you know, going into this with open eyes, understanding that when you take on the status quo, you know, in, in any case, and certainly in an area as complex as health and community vitality, there's going to be resistance. There'll be resistance. There'll be, you know, conflicts of interest. And I think what's most important in the collaboratives that we've seen is this willingness to, you know, work through those breakdowns. And so all of this to us is learning. We don't have the magic solution and we probably will never have the magic solution. But I think what's important <laughs> is commitment to an ongoing process of working together and learning along the way. So level set expectations. That's my takeaway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so where can people learn more about the way to Wellville? Should they be interested? Wellville.net is our website. On Twitter, we're at Way to Wellville. Yeah. And we'd love for more communities who may be doing similar work to reach out to us. We share quite a bit with a, a, a larger community of communities we call Greater Wellville. So it's not just five places that we're connected to. It's actually a, a large growing number of communities. So we'd love to hear from others about what you're doing. And we'd love to share with those who are getting started, you know, what we've learned so far. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Stacey. It was really a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.